listen, if you've got a dense population that has a really good quality of life with the resources they have access to in the fisheries, why would they ever start growing wheat? Mm -hmm. Growing wheat is hard. And it also (laughs) exposes you to, to really intense fluctuations in weather. And like some years you have a bumper crop and some years you have a famine. And like, why would you do that if you have access to consistent marine resources? And so, you know, that's why those populations stuck around as hunter gatherers because they could, Um, you know, transitioning to a, a, a farming lifestyle is hard um, and it's dangerous, but if you do it, it allows you to grow more people. And that's why it took over, even though it was worse for us in terms of health. And we, we can look at, you know, that famous study by angel where he looked across this Neolithic transition in the middle East and, you know, paleolithic hunter gatherers, you know, the Natufians in the middle East, um, living there 15,000 years ago, but just before the Neolithic transition. Mm-hmm. So they're effectively the same genetic stock. There's no genetic stratification issues to deal with. They lived longer and they were healthier. And mm-hmm. when they transitioned to being farmers in the Neolithic, the average lifespan, the average height, you know, in men dropped from five foot 10 in the hunter gatherers to five foot three. Yeah. And it did not recover to that five foot 10 level until the 20th century. Is it recovered? I mean, if we're talking about in people in the Middle East. Has, in some places it yeah. hasn't. I mean, it's, I don't it's, think it's it, amazing. It's astounding. And, and we also have selection, lifespan. don't we? I mean, most people don't realize that, okay, so the average lifespan, average life expectancy, and, and that's a complicated thing because yeah. most people die before the age of five. You know, so. <laughs> It's, you should really be talking about like post age yeah, five yeah. Your life expectancy, but the average life expectancy of a hunter gatherer um, in the Natufian societies was about forty years. Um, it in the full on Neolithic societies that had social hierarchies where everybody was tending the fields, they were all subsistence peasants. It was about thirty one or thirty two. That that number was consistent up through the Roman Empire. It was consistent up through the Middle Ages in mm-hmm. Europe. Yeah. It was consistent up through the 19th century with, you know, Victorian um, factory workers. And it wasn't until modern medicine, especially vaccination and antibiotics were developed, that it started to shift. And, you know, we, we, we've gone up to the numbers we see now. Welcome to the Evolve Move Play podcast, where we bring you the most interesting and enlightening conversations around movement practice and how you can become the most heroic version of yourself through pursuing movement that's relevant to your nature. This is a podcast that's going to feature some of the top movers in the world, some of the most amazing movement thinkers, and people from fields that are related to movement as far afield as evolutionary theory, strength and conditioning, and everything in between. So if you're interested in movement, Please stick around, and if you like our work and want to support it, please consider supporting us on Patreon because this podcast is completely listener-supported. We don't want to take any advertising. We don't want to interrupt your experience of watching the show. So what really helps us get the best thinkers on, have the time to put these together, have the best quality for you guys as far as audio and video is your support. So please consider supporting us and enjoy the rest of the show.
Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Evolve Move Play podcast. Today we're going to be focusing a bit on the Evolve aspect of the Evolve Move Play podcast. I'm extremely excited to have population geneticist Spencer Wells on the program. So if you're not familiar with Spencer Wells, he spent 10 years as the director of the Genographic Project at um, National Geographic, which was in some ways a descendant of the Human, human Genome Project. Uh, he was a student of Luca Cavalli-Sforza, who is, you know, the greatest uh, population geneticist of all time. His book, The Human Odysseys, was a huge influence on me when I was in school as an anthropologist. Spencer is an incredibly brilliant guy, really, you know, the most interesting man in the world type. He's traveled the world. He's been all over. He's done groundbreaking scientific work. He's founded multiple companies. He owns uh, a nightclub on top of everything else that he's done. So he's a really interesting guy. He's uh, uh, partners with Razib Khan, who we've had on the program before for the Insightome, um, the Insight podcast and the Insightome company, which is a 501c3 uh, about uh, genomics. So he's an absolutely fascinating character. In this conversation, we kind of move around pretty freely. We talk a lot about COVID-19 because that's a major interest of Spencer's. He's one of the early kind of warners about COVID-19. He is somebody who knows a lot about immunology and virology and its relationship to evolution and biology. Uh, so he's got a lot to say about that. But we also get into a lot of other stuff around evolutionary biology, around our understanding of how we think about ancestral health and how we can bring more science into that. So I think you guys are going to get a lot out of this. He's a great guest and enjoy. Without further ado, Spencer Wells. Nice. Okay. Well, we'll see if this works. <laughs> Technology, man. It's awesome. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you so much for, uh, for coming on. Um, it's a real pleasure. I was, uh, just listening to some of your, uh, some of your stuff last night with my wife and talking about, uh, your, your, uh, you were mentored by, uh, Luca Cavalli Sforza. I was talking to my wife about that. I'm like, oh my God. So, so crazy. Uh, it's just exciting for us. Uh, my wife's a master of anthropology and, um, Oh, wow. Okay. So she knows who he is. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. She, uh, yeah, no, and I, mean, I she actually did her. Go ahead, go ahead. Uh, she did her, her master's thesis on parkour as a form of adult play. Oh, okay, yeah, but then yeah, I did no, uh, I mean, listen, I, I have had the amazing opportunity to work with three of the most important thinkers in human population genetics. Um, that you know I've ever practiced the craft. Um, did my PhD with a guy named Dick Lewinton at Harvard, um, who's the one who basically you know derived the the you know result that eighty five percent of genetic variation in humans is within populations rather than between races. Yeah. Um, and then working with Luca, who kind of created the study of human migration patterns using DNA. And then with Walter Bodmer, who, you know, effectively characterized the HLA antigens and, you know, was a mathematical geneticist who had worked with Luca at Stanford in the 1960s. And, you know, it was, you know, being able to learn from those people, it's, you know, they're, that's the end of an era. That was a really important era. Those were the guys who really kind of blazed the trail for what we do now. So if we see further than they do, it's because we stand on their shoulders. That's awesome. So you, you're, uh, you're, um, genomicist, 
human genetics specialist. You, um, you've traveled the world for National Geographic, and you're one of the most prominent uh, COVID doomers on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> COVID doomers. Um, my, my buddy Razib calls us COVID hawks, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so actually, uh, yeah, so um, I'm just curious what's kind of, uh, there's, I'm, I'm curious to, to talk to you about all these things. We only have so much time. I'm wondering what, what you're most passionate about to talk about right now. Well, you know, I feel like COVID is kind of, I, I won't, because I actually, I, I've been exploring a theory about herd immunity in Southeast Asia that I, I don't want to go into detail here about because I've actually talked to a, a Southeast Asian bureau chief um, for a major news organization at length about the details. And then with a couple of other colleagues, we're hoping to write up a piece for Science or Nature, just kind of outlining it. So, you know, I think there are some interesting things that can be said about COVID from a biological perspective. And I think they may point the way toward some sort of immunity, um, some sort of vaccine. But in terms of the epidemiology, I mean, that's a done deal now. Like, mm -hmm. it's, it's, there's so many people infected, and countries have made their decisions. I mean, the, the time to play with stochasticity in this pandemic was February or early March. And that's when countries had their one shot at trying to, you know, knock this thing down. And I've said this, you know, several times in other podcasts and other interviews. Um, and some countries did a good job of that. And some countries fucked it up. And the U.S. is one of those countries, unfortunately, that did not do so well. And we're seeing very clearly. I mean, I, I made this prediction over a month ago. I said, listen, we are going to see a second wave in the U.S. that's going to be bigger than the first wave. And it's going to be impossible to ignore by June 10th. And the date right now is June 10th. And if you look at the curves for California, Texas, Florida, North Carolina, um, you know, major states, we're talking a third of the U.S. population, um, Arizona included, you know, the, the curve is inflecting up at a, a rate that, like, it wasn't even close to that in the first wave. So the second wave is going to be 10 times worse than the first one. And that was all predictable a long time ago, you know. And, and you know, I, I was trying to tell people, I'm like, listen, this is not over. Do not release people from lockdown. You need to lock down even harder, if anything, because it's not really going down. You like, you bent the curve, but you didn't really flatten it or drop it off. And, you know, so what we're going to see over the next three months is an overwhelmed hospital system in the U.S. And, um, you know, again, it's, it's, it's pretty predictable and deterministic at this point. It, you know, it's sad, but there's really nothing you can do about it at this stage, you know, the, the, again, the, the point to act was back in late February or early March. And so, you know, I kind of feel like I've said what I need to say about COVID, um, you know, at least in terms of the epidemiology and in terms of what's going on in the U S um, you know, the places that interest me now are places where we should have seen an explosion and we haven't. So India, really interesting. 
Um, I mean, India's got a lot of cases, but India has a lot of people. If you look at the cases per million people, their number is actually pretty low. It's about one five hundredth, I think, of what we see in the U.S. at the moment. Um, and South Africa is another place where it's going to be really interesting because you have a significant you know, proportion of the population that are HIV positive. And we know that pathogens, when they infect, co-infect people who have HIV, tend to do strange things. We've seen that with the evolution of tuberculosis. Um, <clears throat> so those are the places that really interest me now. But, you know, Western Europe, the entire Western hemisphere, that's kind of a done deal now. I mean, all we're going to see is flames going higher and higher in places like Brazil, Peru, and the United States. Mexico. And Mexico, yeah. And it's it's such a shame because, you know, some of us tried. Yeah. <laughs> some of us, you know, the reason we were being alarmist and the reason I was saying things three months ago, like, you know what they call people who overreact in the pandemic, survivors. <laughs> and everybody thought I was being alarmist, you know, but people think you're crazy. You know, they, they, they think you're, you're off your rocker and that you're being alarmist and you know, this is what happens. So I'm, uh, I'm not quite sure where to go from there. Cause I, I heard, I heard you say that maybe this wasn't your favorite topic to go into, but then you kind of got, got, uh, got excited about it. Maybe we'll come back to that and, and go into some of the other stuff first. Does that sound good? Sure. Okay. So, one of my big reasons for wanting to talk to speakers like you, aside from the fact that I'm just really interested in evolutionary biology and anthropology, and it's a, it's a, a strong interest of mine, is for my, my audience, is that within the health and fitness field, there's a lot of people who appeal to evolutionary reasoning. But often it feels like to me they've never read anything more than maybe Guns and Germs and Steel and, you know, um, uh, Sapiens by, by uh, or maybe Daniel Quinn's Ishmael, right? Um mm -hmm. I'll tell you a story quickly. Uh, someone who's pretty close to my circles, for instance, when COVID-19 came out, uh, basically said that if everyone switched to a carnivore diet, we would not get infected because, you know, humans are actually carnivores. <laughs> so my question for you is, as someone who, who, who's deeply educated in these fields, when you see people talking about that, what are the biggest myths, the biggest misconceptions, the things that drive you crazy about the way relying on it um, to make these arguments out there in the, the broader um, health and fitness world? Listen, I mean, I wrote a book about this. I don't know if you've read Pandora's Seed, um, mm -hmm. but it was really all about the transition from being a hunter-gatherer or being hunter-gatherers to being farmers during the Neolithic period about 10,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. And I talked a lot about the whole idea of the caveman diet and, you know, what humans are adapted to live like and, you know, all of this other stuff. So I've done a lot of thinking about this. And that book was published a decade ago. So, you know, this is stuff that I haven't done a lot of thinking about recently, but it's certainly something that I've thought about deeply in the past. Um, the issue I have with the paleo movement in general is that it is supremely reductionist. Um, there, there's a reason why the so-called Mediterranean diet, or what I prefer to think of it as is the Mediterranean lifestyle, is very healthy. And it's not just because they drink red wine. 
or they yeah. have resveratrol, you know, which you can isolate and take a pill for. And suddenly like you've got a Greek lifestyle by popping a single pill. It's not simply hiking around in mountains in Sardinia. It's a combination of all sorts of things. And, you know, the reductionism that I think is rampant in particularly American society, but in Western society in general, where we want to isolate out a single factor and say that this is the reason why X is good or bad for us. Um, you know, that's, that's crazy. I mean, it, biology is immensely complex. It's not like engineering. <clears throat> engineering is simple. You know, and this is, this is an issue I have with people like Elon Musk, you know, who occasionally, you know, after he's had a few joints late at night, I guess, and, you know, starts tweeting about crazy stuff like, you know, don't panic about COVID. Um, you know, engineering is easy because everything that engineers build was built by humans. Mm -hmm. um, biology is complicated because humans were created by biology and we only understand a little bit about how that process happened. And so, you know, to purport to be able to reduce any complex biological phenomenon to a single factor, I think is, you know, misguided at best and dangerous at worst. And so the idea that if you're going to eat meat, you're going to, you know, have some sort of resistance to COVID. No, I mean, that's crazy, but there are factors in that lifestyle in the paleo lifestyle. You know, I, I do feel that, having too many processed carbohydrates in our diet is not a good thing for us. And, you know, this is something I said in that book, that's a new phenomenon. And, you know, it's, it's certainly new in an evolutionary sense over the last 10,000 years. It's really new in the last, you know, 50 or 60 years of industrialized food and, you know, high fructose corn syrup and, you know, corn and everything, literally, like it's hard to find anything that doesn't have corn or soy in it. Yeah. Um, these days. It's, it's just a huge additive. And, you know, I think that's not good. Um, and to the extent that we can get back to, you know, more natural forms of diet, you know, wilder foods, um, you know, meat, if you're a carnivore that was not raised in a feedlot, you know, ideally you shoot it yourself. You know, venison is, is really, really good for you. Um, it doesn't have any of the issues that, you know, corn-fed beef um, from feedlots has with all the antibiotics and the other issues with the omega-6 versus omega-3. Um, but no, I mean, listen, honestly, like, it's very, very complicated. I do think that there is reasonable evidence that higher levels of vitamin D are good for the immune system. Mm -hmm. And the best way to have vitamin D in your body is to expose yourself to sunlight. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I can tell you that since I've been living in Indonesia for the last three and a half months, um, my vitamin D levels are very, very high. And, you know, I've noticed certain things that, you know, I just feel healthier in some ways, certain little issues that, you know, I had when I was living in Austin, going to an office every day and locked away inside all the time. Versus now, you know, I'm out swimming in the ocean and, you know, exposed to sun for several hours a day. And, you know, I think vitamin D plays a role in that. But it's not, I mean, it's not simply vitamin D. You can't just pop a pill full of yeah. vitamin D. It's everything to do with the lifestyle. And so, 
you know, to the extent that you lead that sort of healthy overall lifestyle where, yes, you're exposed to sunlight, you have higher levels of vitamin D. Yes, you eat meat that is not heavily processed and doesn't have a lot of, you know, estrogens and antibiotics in it. And yes, you're not eating a lot of, a lot of processed industrialized carbohydrates. Um, all of those things together, I think, are part of the solution. But they're not going to save people west of the Himalayas um, because there is no herd immunity west of the Himalayas. Um, the herd immunity only exists in Southeast Asia in what I call the Asian pangolin belt. And we know that this virus was a very complex exchange back and forth over probably hundreds, if not thousands of years between bats and pangolins. And bats and pangolins live very similar lifestyles. Um, bats live in caves. They're nocturnal. The horseshoe bats that, you know, we think probably harbored this for at least part of its evolutionary history are, you know, insectivorous. So they eat insects. Um, pangolins are nocturnal. They live in caves and they eat insects. Um, these are creatures that have probably been living in very close quarters for a long, long period of time. And they've been passing, you know, viral strains back and forth. Um, you know, but those those viral strains in those particular species only exist east of the Himalayas. They really only exist from Bangladesh down into Malaysia, Indonesia, Cambodia, Thailand, southern China, and they don't exist anywhere else in the world. And so, you know, that's that's the real issue. I mean, you you have to ask yourself when when I first it, it rewind a little bit here. So. My training is as an evolutionary geneticist, but when, you know, I was getting started as a biologist when I was still an undergrad, I actually did work in a virology lab, um, actually a, a retrovirology lab when we were, you know, still trying to develop vaccines for HIV. That's never happened, by the way. Two yep. generations of scientists have been working on an HIV vaccine. Um, it's never been created. But... So I have a background in virology and epidemiology as well as evolutionary genetics and have been really interested in emerging diseases and so on since I read Laurie Garrett's book, The Coming Plague, um, that she published in 1994, which was all about the emergence of Ebola and the HIV pandemic and everything else. Mm -hmm. you know, HIV was another zoonotic disease. It came into humans from the bushmeat trade in Central Africa. It's a chimpanzee virus that made the leap into humans and, and so yeah. on. It's you know, well-described story. So, you know, I've been interested in all of this for a long time and actually considered, you know, eventually trying, sorry, we have a puppy that is losing her shit outside, but um, anyway, <laughs> uh, yeah, so considered actually studying that, you know, for mm -hmm. my career, like emerging yeah. zoonotic viral diseases because they're fascinating it's literally evolution in action and that's what we're seeing now is where you can actually go onto websites and see the emerging phylogenetic tree of these viruses in real time um so it really is just an amazing um you know model system but um no i mean the the real issue is so you know when this emerged in wuhan and there are some interesting reasons why it would have been Wuhan rather than a lot of other Chinese cities. Wuhan's been urbanized for 3,500 years. And I, I don't think most people realize that because I don't think until this pandemic came onto people's radar, most people had even heard of Wuhan. 
No. But it's a city that's 3,500 years old. It's one of the oldest urban settlements in the world. Um, Anyway, I'm not going to go into too many details in this, but the point is, if you look at the countries outside of China, so let's rewind back to late January. Yeah. This disease is exploding. You know, it's flaming out in China. And everybody's like, oh, my God, where is it going to spread next? And everybody would have said it's going to you know, hit Vietnam and Laos, both of which share borders with China really hard. I thought that. Mm-hmm. Do you know how many confirmed cases there have been in those two countries? Not many. Essentially none. I mean, in comparison to the U.S., in comparison to any country west of the Himalayas, essentially zero. Laos reopened a month ago because it only had like, you know, a dozen cases and no deaths. That's not due to testing disparities. Mm -hmm. And that is not due to luck. When you see something like that, there's something going on. They have a herd immunity in this part of the world. And so figuring out what that is, is going to be really important. That's the key factor. And, you know, beyond that, it's all the stuff that like Greek physicians could have noticed, you know, 2,500 years ago. So obese people, old people, men tend to be hit harder than anybody else. Yeah. Um, You know, so if you're talking about risk pools, like if you have a BMI over 30, especially if it's over 35, like you're at very high risk. Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. nearly half of America is, you know, obese now. Yeah. Um, if, If you're old, you know, you're at much higher risk. You know, if you're over 70, yeah, this is a deadly killer. This is worse than SARS, um, which is the, you know, coronavirus that emerged in 2002, 2003. Um, You know, so between the obese people and the baby boomers, who, in my opinion, like those two risk groups, it's pretty clear should not be allowed to reengage with society. um, That's a significant fraction of the United States population. (laughs) And so the question is, like, how do you restart an economy when the majority of people can't be involved in that? And, you know, this is the complexity that the U.S. is facing right now. It's not just down to can we become more carnivorous? Can we go out? <laughs> and more? Um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's much more complicated than that. And, you know, this is this is a strange, a strange time. And, and again, it just like thinking about what I, I mentioned earlier with reductionism, like everybody wants to compare this to the 1918 flu pandemic, or they want to compare it, you know, in terms of the economic impact to the Great Depression. But each of those was singular events. You didn't have those happening at the same time. In this case, they're happening at the same time. And what I've, you know, argued is that because of that, they are not simply additive. It's mm-hmm. not just, well, it's like having this with that, it's multiplicative. And so if the economic impact is a 10 out of 10, and if the you know health impact is a 10 out of 10, then if you multiply them, this is 100 times worse than anything we've seen recently. And so, you know, this is what really scares me is that people aren't realizing that, you know, both of these things happening at the same time, and I get you know, this, it's really hard. It's like, you know, you see the economy falling apart 
you see 40 million people out of work, you see an unemployment rate that's probably up around 25% already, and you wanna get people back to work and you wanna save companies and you wanna save jobs and you wanna keep people from starving to death. But on the other hand, you know that, especially given the risk pools in a place like the US, like when you allow people out to re-engage, some of them are gonna get sick and die. You know. not an insignificant fraction. If this has an infection fatality rate, an IFR of 1%, which you know seems to be pretty consistent around the world, across yeah. you know different regions and different age groups and so on, the average seems to be around 1%. That means 3.3 million Americans will die from this if you just yeah. open things up. And so, you know, it's a really, really tough choice. It's it's stark either way. It's stark. You know, in in one direction, because it'll drive the economy to its knees. It's stark in the other direction, because remember, it's not just about deaths. It's about morbidity. And literally, if you if you open things up completely and you try to achieve so-called herd immunity, there aren't enough ventilators on the planet to save people. So a couple things about that. So I, I've been following the COVID thing pretty pretty closely. Sorry, sorry to be so grim, but no, no, no it, it's 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 cool. So um, clearly, this is this is what you're passionate about right now. So it's good. Let's let's get into it. Um, to go back to earlier when we we're talking about you know the pay, the like eating the right foods is going to save you, right? Mm-hmm. And the idea That's of engineering. Of it. It's right? absolutely part of it. It's part of a healthy lifestyle. Sure, sure, but it's it. What 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 is what bothers me about that first is, uh, is that people aren't accounting for uncertainty, right? Yeah. It's like, okay, cool. So, so maybe this helps, but where's your data, right? Like where, yeah. you know, like how do, how do you, how being certain about something like that feels very foolish when you're seeing something, right? We don't know why it's killing older people and not younger people. We don't know why kids aren't getting it. And that's not, that's not necessarily the pattern with other things. Um, sometimes I, I'm know, pretty sure I know, but okay. <laughs> I, I don't know that you necessarily want to get into the technical details. I mean, okay, here's part of the reason. Um, have you ever read mono mononucleosis? Uh, sorry, you broke up there. You said something about mononucleosis. Yeah. Have you ever had mono? No, I haven't. Okay. Um, it's funny cause you asked everybody that, and some will say, yes, I did. And I had it at 14. It was the worst illness I ever had in my life. I, I was knocked, you know, flat on my back for three weeks with swollen glands. I mean, my tonsils were so big, I couldn't even swallow liquids. Yeah, It was yeah. horrible. Like, I, I couldn't stand up. I was so weak. I, I was crawling across the floor to go to the bathroom. Um, and, you know, recovered from that, and, you know, it's fine. But... Um, it turns out when you do antibody tests on the underlying virus that causes that, which is a member of the herpes virus family, it's something called Epstein-Barr virus or EBV, yeah. um, about 95% of people have had EBV. Yeah. But a lot of them don't know about it. They didn't have mono because mm-hmm. they caught it at a very early age. Yeah. And when you're exposed to diseases at an early age, your immune system is a little bit more plastic. It's a little bit better able to deal with things and incorporate that antibody and antigenic repertoire into its its ecosystem, if you will, without causing a full-blown disease. 
And so, so a lot of diseases, if you catch them before the age of five, are virtually asymptomatic. And EBV is one of those types of viruses. If you catch them after the age of, you know, 14, 15, 16, they can kill you. And I think this is this is an example of, of this type of, you know, what's going on right now with, with SARS-CoV-2. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that the herd immunity that exists exists because a lot of people in rural poor parts of Southeast Asia in this Asian pangolin belt have been exposed to this early on. And so, you know, hearkening back to what we were talking about with like kind of evolutionary medicine and paleo lifestyle and so on, um, raising your kids in a sterile environment in the city is not good for them. (laughs) People ask me all the time, it's like, you know, what's the best thing I can do for my kid in terms of like disease exposure and, you know, health and all this other stuff. And I'm like, stick them in a barnyard for the, you know, second six months of their lives and expose them to as many things as you can expose them to, because in all likelihood, they're not even going to get sick, but they're going to have this amazing immune response to anything they encounter later on in life. And, you know, I think this is part of the reason why we're seeing the rise of, you know, peanut allergies. I mean, I didn't know a single kid when I went to elementary school back in the seventies who had peanut allergies, everybody brought a peanut butter and jelly sandwich to school. Now, if you sent your kid to school with a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, you would probably be sued by the school district. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) No, I mean, we've experienced that. I I think this is a reflection of this very strange lifestyle we've created in the West, which is so antithetical to the way that we lived, evolutionarily speaking, for millions of years. Yeah. And I mean, this is this is right at the heart of my work. Right. So what I do is at the intersection of, you know, trying to understand humans from an evolutionary perspective and also actually building physical practices. So mm-hmm. the the idea of the hygiene hypothesis is something that, that I've thought about a lot. I've got three kids, you know, and they're out in the dirt, climbing trees all the time, even in the city, you know, we have a dog in part just to have better immune response in our kids. And we're trying yeah. to move out to a, to a, to a, you know, into nature again, I grew up on the end of a dirt road, um, you know, with, all sorts of animals around and everything. So um, I actually think it's a, you know, let me, let me, I wanted to go back to this idea of engineering versus complex systems, because this is what is very interesting to me. Um, Engineering has been incredibly powerful. Reductionist science has been incredibly powerful, but it feels like there's lots of places in which we are running into that, the, the limitations of that perspective or where that's leading us down paths that don't even work. Um, and are you familiar with the idea of uh, uh, complex problems versus complicated problems? Um, I probably could figure that out, but no, explain okay. it to me. So um, this is a distinction that my friend Todd Hargrove uh, exposed me to. Um, it's also something I've been talking about with John Verveke, but the basic idea is that a, a complicated problem is a problem that has an algorithmic solution right? Mm -hmm. It it can have lots of moving pieces, but there's one way that it is done that will uh, give you a precise output. So Mm -hmm. building a rocket ship is difficult. There's lots of pieces, but if you do it right, you'll, you'll get your, your rocket ship to to the moon every time. Um, Raising children is a complex problem, right? There are so many 
environmental factors. And there, there's so much variability in how those things play out that there's no, there's no way to say, I'm going to program this kid to go to Harvard. Right? You, yeah. You and it's, you know, in, in biology, ecologists, um, including, you know, in evolutionary thinkers like my PhD advisor, Dick Lewinton, you know, have written about butterflies fluttering their wings in one place on the planet exactly. and a hurricane pops up in Southeast Asia. And you can't figure out exactly what that chain of events was, but you know that, you know, they all added up to produce that final event. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's, that's hard for humans to fathom. It really yeah. is. Um, especially if you think about that spread out over multi-generational timeframes, which is what we're dealing with with climate change. There's mm -hmm. so many factors that feed into how will things play out in terms of, you know, the increase in temperatures and are there other factors that will come into play when, you know, the ice starts to melt and permafrost thaws and everything else and sea levels rise and, you know, CO2 levels go up. And so the Amazon starts to reforest and it starts to suck more CO2 out of the atmosphere. And it just gets so complicated that, you know, especially because it's something that's playing out over generations, like people, people can't deal with that. Like existential risk in your lifetime, like what we're dealing with now with this pandemic, like people can kind of get that. Although I feel like a lot of people are still missing even that it's like, you know, if you can't look a few months out and play that chess game and figure out what's going to happen, like natural selection is there for a reason, man. Um, but no, I mean, the, the really long-term complicated stuff like climate change, like, I mean, humans just aren't built to deal with that. We, we, can't, we can't imagine what might happen, you know, and what is the cost-benefit analysis, which is what we're always doing in the backs of our minds. It's like, okay, so if there's going to be this cost in the future, you know, how much do we have to spend in the present to avert that? And what's the immediate benefit? Like we can't figure that out, but that's not the way our brains are wired evolutionarily. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't, it didn't help you get your genes forward in the, in the gene pool very much. Exactly. You're thinking exactly. down that far down the line. Yeah. You have to be able to solve the problems in front of you. Um, so, so yeah, so I'm, so uh, if we go back to that question of, of what are people getting wrong, uh, I think that a lot of times we're, we're looking at, you know, evolution is basically study of ecological systems, right? Systems that are inherently complex and that are constantly dealing with variability. And people cherry pick little pieces of that and try to use them as engineering solutions rather than trying to understand the entire context that they're looking at. Yep. Um, the... You know, I I think there's a lot of value in in certain of the the paleo strategies. I've used the carnivore diet myself. I think it's a really effective weight loss strategy. I think that it works really well for people with autoimmune uh, issues, which I have. Um, I don't think that it's optimally healthy long term, and I think the fact that it works for some people is not good evidence that it's what we actually evolve for when we have all sorts of other evidence, right? Yeah, yeah, and it it's gotten really complicated in the last few years, as I'm sure you know, because you probably follow the literature at least as much as I do, but you know, the whole concept of a paleo diet, it's not that people were living entirely on woolly mammoths. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there were a lot of tubers and greens and other things in people's yeah. diet. Um, they, they had a more varied diet than the average American does these days in terms of species that they were consuming. 
Um, and most of those were plant species. So, you know, paleo means something very different if you think about it in a true paleo sense. But it is true, again, that, you know, the high consumption of simple carbs, the fact that nearly 70% of the calories consumed on the planet today come from rice, corn, and wheat, um, mm. that's a radical shift. And, yeah. you know, I don't think humans have completely adjusted physiologically to that shift in, in energy sources. Yet. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm kind of curious to go a little bit more deep into the evolutionary side of this for a second, because it, it's just an interesting question for me. But I think that when we think about health from an evolutionary perspective, there's this tendency to get focused on this idea of the environment of evolutionary adaptedness, right? And that, the, that theoretically is the savannas of Africa, and we're out there chasing down giant mm -hmm. wildebeests and, and eating them, and that's pretty much what we adapted for. Mm -hmm. But I think that um, that in some way, it's a simplistic thing. It almost recapitulates the fall. It's like you were adapted for this Edenic experience that, that it, and we don't apply, think about the evolution that preceded it, mm -hmm. but there's, but you have to think about the deep time depth of, of evolution and how that has constrained the paths that are available to you. And you also have to think about what's happened post the, uh, the end of the uh, Paleolithic. I'm sure you've read John Hawke's paper on the acceleration of adaptive evolution in human beings. Well, again, this is something I wrote about in Pandora's Seed over a decade ago. Yeah. Um, and it's something a lot of people have talked about. And, you know, it's, it's a little bit complicated. One of, I mean, I, I, I do a fair amount of teaching. Um, I don't have a full-time faculty position, but I've always had an adjunct position where I do some teaching because I like to maintain contact with students and, you know, put together lectures and, you know, just keeps me on my toes, so to speak. Um, and so, you know, I, I taught a course on a broad synthesis of human evolution at NYU Abu Dhabi a year and a half ago now. God, it's been that long. Time has really flown in 2020, hasn't it? Um, so the January term <laughs> that they have there, um, it, they invite all these you know, professors from all over the world to come in and teach these you know, three-week courses that you, know, you lecture for three hours a day and you know, they, they have a big budget. And so we took them out in the field to Oman to a Paleolithic site and they learned how to flake tools and how to recognize you know, Paleolithic versus Neolithic tools sitting there on the surface. It was, it was an amazing experience. They also analyzed their own genomic data um, and, you know, learned all about the concepts of human evolution hands-on. Really fun. But, um, yeah, I mean, one of the things that, that people, students tend to get really confused about is how natural selection operates in populations. And it's kind of counterintuitive, but selection is much more powerful in very large populations. Mm -hmm. And so if you live in a small hunter-gatherer band of say 10 or 20 people, what's driving evolution in that band? Yeah, there's a little bit of selection, but it's gotta be pretty damn strong to be active in a small population. Mostly what's operating there is something called genetic drift. And yeah. so stochastic effects, sampling effects in every generation. The reason why if you flip a coin 10 times, you could easily get seven heads and three tails. 
But if you flip it 10,000 times, you're going to get 50, 50. It's a mm -hmm. certainty. Yep. Um, yep. So selection acts best in large populations. And because human populations only became large in an evolutionary sense, i.e., you know, tens of millions, hundreds of millions um, around the world, since the Neolithic and since the development of farming, that's when a lot of the selection has been acting on humans. It's in the last 10,000 years since we became farmers and the population size exploded. So that's a big part of it. It's also the change in lifestyle. And so mm -hmm. we've adapted to that. But that adaptation has continued up to the present day. I mean, <clears throat> lactose tolerance. Yeah. The story on that used to be, oh, well, in the Neolithic, people domesticated sheep and cattle and goats in the Middle East. And over the last 8,000 years, it gradually rose to higher frequency as they moved into Europe. No, that's not the story at all. Neolithic farmers were not lactose tolerant at all. We look at ancient DNA from, you know, Neolithic farmers in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. None of them have the, the lactase persistence genetic variant. Yeah. Do you know where that came from? It came from the people who domesticated horses on yep. the Central Asian and, you know, Southern Russian steppes, the Yamnaya people. And it moved into Europe within the last, you know, 3,000 years or so, 3,500 years or so. You know, with probably with the spread of Indo-European languages. And today, you know, Northern Europeans are 95% lactose tolerant. And that's the reason why, you know, us imperialistic, you know, slight, slightly racist Northern <laughs> Europeans see that as the norm. But in mm -hmm. fact, it's a very recent mutation that rose to high frequency, you know, in the last couple of thousand years. One of the things and I found... One of the things I found yeah. fascinating about that is, in fact, it wasn't even fixated in those uh, Indo-Europeans as they um, spread it, if I'm correct, right? Yeah. So if you go to 3,000 years ago and you look at like the Bell Beaker people who are spreading throughout um, Western Europe, my understanding is that they had significantly less lactase persistence than we do now. So it's yep. acted, it's, you know, they had it and that was spread from that area, but um, it, it's continued to be under selection I mean, yeah. just within the last 3,000 years, yeah, it changed I mean, rapidly. It's amazing. I mean, the, the amount of selection that has gone on, I mean, same thing with blonde hair yeah. and blue eyes. You know, yeah. those are not old traits, and yet they are so widespread in so many Northern European populations. I mean, Walter Bodmer, you know, again, one of these people I was lucky enough to work with, you know, had this throwaway phrase um, that gentlemen prefer blondes. You know, yeah, he yeah. thought it was sexual selection. And I think it's probably, that's probably a big part of it. You know, all so of these forces connect very rapidly in, in recent history. Yeah. Well, okay. So I wanted to ask you this question because this is kind of a, this is to get into this, this issue, which is basically like, how are Europeans, uh, how is the origin of Europeans like the origin of Puerto Ricans? That's okay. That's very meta. <laughs> um, I don't know what you're looking for in terms of an answer, but I can, I can try and concoct one. Um, you know, Puerto Ricans are really interesting because they are effectively a mix of three different populations. Um, so they have a small percentage, although it's larger than we anticipated before we started looking and I've actually published papers on this and as part of the Geographic Project. 
Um, they have a small percentage of Native American ancestry that varies from zero to 20%. Mm-hmm. Depends on the individual. Um, and th- there's variation around the island as well. And then a lot of Sub-Saharan African ancestry due to the slave trade. And then obviously a lot of, you know, Iberian ancestry. So Spanish, Portuguese, you know, even Italian ancestry. So, you know, Southern, Southwestern, Mediterranean, European ancestry. And so that complex mix, you know, has washed in in various waves and recombined. And it's created the genomes of modern Puerto Ricans. Same thing in Europe. I mean, you've got the early Paleolithic settlement of Europe that probably happened you know, first wave of fully modern humans, although we don't even know what that means anymore because everybody was messing around with each other and <laughs> everybody was half Denisovan and half Neanderthal if you go back yeah. long enough. And, you know, but, you know, what, what we refer to as fully modern Homo sapiens um, probably came in between 40 and 45,000 years ago. And in the nobody, Europe, right? in, no, nobody in Europe today is a descendant of those first Europeans. So they went extinct. Um, the major wave of Paleolithic migration really that, that stuck around for a reasonable amount of time and had an impact on populations today probably came in, you know, 25, 30,000 years ago, maybe 35, Gravettian culture. Um, and, you know, so those were the initial major um, Homo sapiens hunter-gatherer populations in Europe. They always had a low population density. Hunter-gatherers, especially in places like Northern Europe, I mean, can you imagine trying to find enough food to feed your family as a hunter-gatherer in places like Ireland or, you know, southern Scandinavia? I mean, it's... Doesn't actually that change? It was not easy. So wait a second. I want to go back for a second because I think there's an interesting story there because um, during the period when there was ice sheets across like the Baltic... Uh, it would have been incredibly hard, right, for people to to survive out there. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, so, but so when Northern we get to Europe was not properly settled until the end of the ice age. So yeah. until so then transition to the Holocene. But, but I then mean, when we get to even sorry, then, even then. Sorry, Spencer. Yeah, just one more, one more, one more point on that because I think this is really interesting. When we get to the end of the Bronze Age, isn't it true that actually we see huge population densities along the Baltic? And this is one of the areas where where the agriculturalists are held back by the hunter forgers because of the richness of the marine resources. Yeah, there's yeah. actually. I mean, I'm from the Pacific Northwest, so we have the same kind of Absolutely. history here. Absolutely, um, there there are two cultures in recent history, you know, i.e., within recorded history, that have maintained a hunter gatherer lifestyle, you know, into the last two thousand years, mm-hmm. and one of those was in Japan because of the richness of those yeah. marine resources. Um, the Joman people, like they were hunter gatherers until about the dawn of the common era. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. You know, and it's one of the things that I find most fascinating about visiting Japan is that, you know, effectively um, Shintoism, their, their, you know, traditional religion, it's, it's a formalized version of animism. I mean, it's mm-hmm. tree worship and stone worship and, you know, land worship and all the stuff that, that you find in traditional animist hunter-gatherer religions around the world. And it's because that tradition persisted until, you know, after the time of Julius Caesar. Like, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, same thing in the Pacific Northwest. 
I mean, those yeah. incredibly rich salmon fisheries are basically what allowed people. I mean, they had cities in both of these places. Mm-hmm. Some of the earliest pottery on earth was created by hunter gatherers in Japan. And, you know, there were cities with hierarchies and governments and, and so on in the Pacific Northwest. This, it, it, when they were living as hunter gatherers, like that's not supposed to happen. You're supposed to have to go through that transition to yeah. farming to produce mm-hmm. those things. But no, I mean, because of the richness of the resources, they could kind of stick around in this hunter-gatherer lifestyle and the population could get big enough that they had to develop all of these other kind of modern Neolithic um, inventions. So just um, to point of clarity, you said that there's only two areas that maintain popula- uh, hunter-gatherer populations into the last 2,000 years. But I think what you meant was sedentary hunter-gatherer populations, right? Because obviously we have the yeah, yeah, and we yeah. have people no, in Australia and the you know significant hunter gatherer populations where it was it was tough for the farmers to make inroads into yeah. places like that and that's the reason why i mean the reason i brought this up is because you mentioned these balkan hunter gatherer populations living on baltic, marine resources baltic. or sorry baltic um the reason for that is like listen if you've got a dense population that has a really good quality of life with the resources they have access to in the fisheries, why would they ever start growing wheat? Mm-hmm. Growing wheat is hard, and it also <laughs> exposes you to to really intense fluctuations in weather. And like some years you have a bumper crop, and some years you have a famine. And like, why would you do that if yeah. you have access to consistent marine resources? And so, you know, that's why those populations stuck around as hunter gatherers because they could. Um, you know, transitioning to a, a a farming lifestyle is hard um, and it's dangerous, but if you do it, it allows you to grow more people. And that's why it took over, even though it was worse for us in terms of health. And we, we can look at, you know, that famous study by angel where he looked across this Neolithic transition in the middle East and, you know, paleolithic hunter gatherers, you know, the Natufians in the middle East, um, living there 15,000 years ago, but just before the Neolithic transition. Mm-hmm. So they're effectively the same genetic stock. There's no genetic stratification issues to deal with. They lived longer and they were healthier. And mm-hmm. when they transitioned to being farmers in the Neolithic, the average lifespan, the average height, you know, in men dropped from five foot 10 in the hunter gatherers to five foot three. Yeah. And it did not recover to that five foot 10 level until the 20th century. Is it recovered? I mean, if we're talking about in people in the Middle East. Has, in some places it yeah. hasn't. I mean, it's, I it's, it's it, amazing. It's astounding. And, and this is selection, lifespan. don't we? I mean, most people don't realize that, okay, so the average lifespan, average life expectancy, and, and that's a complicated thing because yeah. most people die before the age of five. You know, so. <laughs> It's, you should really be talking about like post age yeah, five yeah. life expectancy, but the average life expectancy of a hunter gatherer um, in the Natufian societies was about forty years. Um, it in the full on Neolithic societies that had social hierarchies where everybody was tending the fields, they were all subsistence peasants. It was about thirty one or thirty two. That that number was consistent up through the Roman Empire. It was consistent up through the Middle Ages. 
in Europe. Yeah. It was consistent up through the 19th century with, you know, Victorian um, factory workers. And it wasn't until modern medicine, especially vaccination and antibiotics were developed, that it started to shift. And, you know, we, we, we've gone up to the numbers we see now. Yeah. So America was, was different, right? Because we had, um, we had a lot more open land, a lot more resources per person. So I think it was about 47 here during that same period, if I remember Mm -hmm. correctly, but, um, there's something that this is a pet peeve of mine as well is people think that it, because the, the average lifespan is 32 years, that what happens is that most people live to 32 and keel over dead. Like they're like they're, um, dying of old age. It's right? bimodal. So you've got a yeah. big group of people who die before the age of five, and then you've got a big group of people that are probably living to 45 or 50, I would say. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, what, if someone is 30 years old and they're yeah. a medieval peasant in, you know, let's say uh, 1150 BC, before the Black Death, right? Mm-hmm. What is their expected lifespan, do you think, from 30? Um, I know that these numbers have been run. I'm ashamed to admit that I don't have them on the top of my head. Um, They weren't good, though. They They weren't good. Um, You know, medieval peasants had a pretty shitty existence. Until the Black Death, right? (laughs) No, I mean, like, the Black Death, in a way, was kind of a blessing, um, at least the ones who survived, because, you know, that led (laughs) to the Renaissance. Um, You know, basically... Economic history is really fascinating through that period because it's all about land holdings and there's a reason why nobody got rich except for the aristocracy until the Industrial Revolution. Um, And there's a reason why peasants had low salaries throughout the Black Death period, all of the Middle Ages up to the, the Black Death. And then suddenly there weren't a lot of people and there was a lot of land and the people who owned the land needed the people to work the land. And so salaries shot through the roof and that's what led to the renaissance and it you know the peasants who survived the black death had a much better lifestyle than their grandparents who had lived prior to that yeah uh, i mean average I mean, height goes up by really about four or five inches right it, it's it's how the modern world was created in essence yeah. um that whole period from i mean it, and remember that the the plague came in waves mm-hmm. and the first I mean, listen, the plague really goes back, the Justinian plague and yeah. so on. I mean, the time of the Romans, but, you know, the, the plague that we think about started in the 14th century. And the last big plague, what we call the Black Death, was the one that attacked London in 1666. And this is something that's worth bearing in mind with the current pandemic. Like, mm-hmm. if you think about the Black Plague lasting from the 14th to the 17th century, and really um, from what plague of Justinian's fifth century? No, but I mean just the ones yeah. that happened yeah. from the 14th to the, the 17th century. Um, you know, that last wave that we believe might have been sparked by the Mongols and, and, and so on. Um, you know, that doesn't bode well for we're gonna be done with this by summer, which of yeah. course we're not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's come back to that. I think it'd be fun to, to I have a kind of rapid series of questions for you around coronavirus, but I'm, I'm, I'm interested in some of these other things right now. So I wanted to go back because we didn't kind of finish the story of how Europeans are like Puerto Ricans, um, yeah, which I think so, is quite interesting. Okay, so, so let me, I, I just wanted to, to tie something in there though. You said, no, 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 that, it, it's really good. Me, so, can I, I, I just yeah, want to link one thing because we, we were talking about this idea that we have this 
this this model in our head of the 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 caveman right and we're all descended from the caveman and the caveman kind of exists in this this eden where they're killing and eating mammoths every day um but we might not even be descended from those cavemen right we're we're no. the population no. the population um history is much where, more where complex. are your ancestors from um i'm i'm a i'm mostly british by ancestry polish okay. Uh, and so am I. I'm Polish mostly and, British and a little bit of Scandinavian. Yeah, I'm Polish uh, and and Portuguese and a little bit of African. So you mentioned earlier, you know about this. You know about the bell beakers. Yeah. Um, yeah. You and you know about that abrupt shift when the bell beakers arrived in the British Isles. What ninety five percent population replacement? Exactly. Exactly. So the people who built Stonehenge were not related genetically nearly at all. I mean, a small percentage of their DNA, but effectively there was a complete replacement. People who built Stonehenge were not related to the people who were worshiping there a few hundred years later. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's pretty astounding. It is. It's a crazy story. <laughs> um, so, 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 so we have this, you know, instead of evolution being this kind of this one thing we're going through, we have these, de these demographic pumps moving in and out of, especially Europe. Europe seems to have been a place where, uh, you know, the Neanderthals would come in, the climate would get bad, they'd get forced into refugia, a lot of them would die off, maybe modern humans were doing this too. And then, you know, and then you have uh, the Western hunter foragers, followed by the early European farmers, followed by the steppe people. And those those Western hunter foragers, I, I think Razib was talking recently about like, they're like the third population of hunter foragers to have populated Europe in the previous two largely didn't leave descendants. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. And so I tend to take a very global view of this in part because that's where my research has led me. Yeah. Um, so I think a lot of people focus a lot on Europe and we've solved Europe now. Yeah. And Europe is a model for some parts of the world but certainly not all of them. So Europe is a very good model for what went on in Southwestern Asia. Okay. Um, and we know that, you know, and David Reich wrote about this in his book and, you know, the papers have been published more recently, the scientific papers, um, that you have that same process of, you know, Paleolithic settlement, hunter gatherers, tiny fraction of the population. Then you had Neolithic farmers moving in they mix with the Paleolithic hunter-gatherers to a certain extent, but really the Bronze Age came through and they wiped out a lot of the previous variation and the mm. previous populations. Um, but you don't see that in other parts of the world because a lot of the world didn't go through the Bronze Age transition. Um, there was never a Bronze Age in the Americas, mm. for instance. And that's part of the reason yeah. there's so much linguistic diversity in the Americas. It's part of the reason why, you know, Goldberg's, theory of, uh, or Greenberg, sorry, Greenberg's theory of yeah. linguistic um, families in the Americas is so contentious because, you know, there are thousands of languages spoken in South America alone. And he groups them all into something he calls Amaranth. Yeah. You know? yeah. Let's and, can we back up for a second there? Because I think yeah. the audience is not going to know. Like you and I can, can throw for, uh, go back and forth on some of these reference. So Joseph Greenberg, right, is a linguist who way before this genetic data um, hypothesized that there were three distinct language families, Eskimo, Aleut, uh, Nadine, and Amerind. 
and it's what 90% of the languages are Amerind. Yeah. And everybody else in linguistics divided them into hundreds of language families, if I if I understand mm -hmm. correctly. Like Nadine and Eskiyah Ali are relatively uncontroversial. Um, yeah. but the Amerind family is is something that uh that that we don't, you know, that uh that is well, was not highly agreed upon, but then the well, genetic data comes Google in. And, it. Google it and you know, click on the images link mm -hmm. when you get your Google search back, and you will see a map yeah. of the Amarin languages, and you'll see literally dozens of colors smeared around in some sort of weird psychedelic pattern all over South America. And if you know a little bit about you know, the history of the development of agriculture and so on there, like you can kind of make sense of some of them, but for the most part, it's just a mishmash. Like it, it looks like a calico fabric pattern mm -hmm. and seems totally random. And so when Greenberg came along and said, oh, well, you know, they're really all just the descendants of that initial wave of migration to the Americas 15,000 years ago, everybody was like, get the F out of here. Like, what are you talking about? Like these languages are so different from each other. And so, you know, but I, the genetic data has certainly borne that out. And, you know, the reason I bring that up is because the bronze age in much of the world, especially in Eurasia, um, served to spread dominant language families. Um, the reason Indo-European is so widespread um, in the regions where it's traditionally spoken. So this is pre-1500. Mm -hmm. um, so we're not talking about, you know, the reason they speak Portuguese in Brazil. We're talking yeah. about, you know, pre-Columbus, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, but the reason it's so widespread is because of the spread of these Bronze Age step nomads that did a lot of conquering and, you know, they brought the languages with them. And so, you know, we have a relatively skewed, depauperate view of language diversity and mm -hmm. language is a proxy for genetic diversity um, when we look at European or Southwestern Eurasian populations um, because of, you know, everything traces back to the Bronze Age, effectively. It's only about three, 4,000 years old. Um, but if you look in other parts of the world, and this is something Razib and I have talked about, and we're eventually going to do a podcast specifically on this because it's something I've been fascinated by for a long time. You look in places like New Guinea, Mm -hmm. So New Guinea had a separate origin of the Neolithic. So yeah. if you've ever eaten a banana, those were domesticated in the highlands of New Guinea. Um, and taro, you know, yeah. the Polynesian yeah. thing, um, poi in Hawaii, um, that was domesticated in the highlands of New Guinea. So totally separate Neolithic transition. It happened around the same time, 10,000 years ago. And it spread down from the highlands of New Guinea. So New Guinea went through that Neolithic transition, but they never developed the Bronze Age. Um, I have met elders in the highlands of New Guinea who still were headhunters when they were young men. They still had to go through that rite of passage of sneaking into another village and killing somebody and cutting their head off. Um, they still had Neolithic technology when the Europeans arrived. Um, first contact was within generational memory. You can talk to people who remember the first Europeans that came in, mm -hmm. and you can talk to them about the stone tools that they used until the Europeans arrived. So they went through the Neolithic transition, but they never went through the Bronze Age. And as a result, 
New Guinea today has the highest linguistic diversity of any place on the planet. It has 22, I believe, 22 or 23 language families that are as different as Indo-European and Japanese. Um, and sometimes those language families coexist on the same stretch of river, just a few miles apart. Yeah. And it's a reflection of this strange history. And it's, it's a picture of what the world probably looked like before the Bronze Age. Yeah, so you can um, imagine that if you're going yeah. down the Rhine in 5,000 yep. BC, or yep. earlier than that, so 7,000 BC, 10,000 BC, you're gonna have multiple language families that are more distantly Some related. Some people suggested, and I think it's quite reasonable, that all of these major hunter-gatherer bands and you know, those hunter-gatherer bands are the ones that decided to settle down and create Neolithic cities. Um, they all spoke a different language. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, linguists tell us, there, there are around 6,000 languages spoken and characterized in the world today. We're losing a language every two weeks. You know, 90% of the world's languages would be extinct by the end of the century, blah, blah, blah. This is stuff I've talked about a lot, but... If you rewind a little to the you know, pre-Columbian exchange in the year 1500, linguists think there were 15,000 languages spoken. And if you go back to the Neolithic, there might've been 10 times that number. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. mean, the world we see today is, is, it's kind of like if you took a really complicated drawing on an Etch-a-Sketch and then shook it up, Mm -hmm. And you see like little outlines of what was there before, but we, we have no concept. We know, for instance, from ancient DNA work that, you know, I've done with colleagues in Denmark and other places that 90% of the genetic lineages in the Americas were wiped out in the Colombian exchange. 90%. Yeah. Yeah. I've read uh, 1491 and 1493, yep. I think are two yep. of the best books that anyone can read. And I actually think that they help me a lot in understanding and, and kind of being having the right set of priors to comprehend what was going to happen with co coronavirus. Mm -hmm. I, like, I think that one of the reasons why so many people um, are resistant to this is because they just don't have any, they don't have any mental reference for what pandemics were like and how much they drove history. Absolutely. I mean, listen, one of the, the books that I read as an undergraduate that had, you know, the strongest effect on my, my view of human evolutionary history, but particularly human history, um, was Plagues and Peoples by William McNeil. Okay. And he makes a very compelling case for why, you know, pandemic diseases have driven so much of human history. And so many of these events that, you know, on the surface, if you really don't know that much about history, seem random and disconnected. Like if you look underneath the surface, there's often a disease that's connecting these events. Yeah. Uh, I, was, I was talking about this on a recent podcast with, with, um, with sexuality, right? I think that people really underestimate how much the sexual mores in a society depend on the venereal diseases in a society. So yep. we have this idea of Europe as having this extraordinarily straight-laced, re repressive sexual culture. Um, and I, I think, you know, it's obviously, it's harder to to know for sure. But if you look at traditional folk songs, it look like Chaucer's Tales. Um, despite what the- body. Yeah, despite the what the- bath, 
<laughs> yeah. Despite what you saw in the, you know, the, the church culture, it seems to me like the average peasant really wasn't, wasn't too bothered by it in, in you say, you know, the 1100s, yeah. but once syphilis hits, and like people are going crazy from it all of a sudden it's like well that's that's the victorian period i don't, yeah. and I don't well, think and, people and recognize syphilis, that syphilis is really interesting because syphilis still hasn't been solved yeah okay i don't know um, where it came from well exactly i mean it's closely related to things that have different symptoms in old world populations mm -hmm. okay and it could have been a mutation that shifted suddenly and allowed it to be transmitted sexually and you know spirochete bacteria are really nasty i, I nearly died from lyme disease um no, I've had lyme disease as well which is another spirochete it yeah. infected my heart and i had a complete heart block and i was in the cardiac care unit for four days with a heart rate of around 15 to 20 beats a minute but it was random and you know the heart line was the ekg was off the charts and crazy but um, spirochetes are weird. And so, you know, it's possible that that was just a random mutation. It's also possible it was picked up from the Americas, you know, because it happened mm -hmm. around that time. Yeah. And so yeah, that's, that's been a that. huge debate, you know, and ancient DNA is going to solve this eventually. And, you know, there have been reports of, you know, oh, we found a spirochete in pre-1500 bones from, you know, Ecuador, things like that. Um, but the jury's still out. Um, but I think you're right there. I mean, like, that came along suddenly um, around the time of kind of it was it was before Voltaire, but it, Voltaire wrote about that. And it, you're right. It did shift like cultural norms um, in the same way that HIV did for Gen X. You know, I'm a Gen X or I was born in 1969. I was, you know, starting to think about becoming sexually active in the early 80s. And that was right around the time when AIDS was like, okay, you have sex and you're going to die. And so like that had a huge impact on my generation. It was like, oh my God. Cause remember we were coming out of our parents, like wanton, crazy orgies. Like, mm -hmm. you know, my parents were relatively straight laced, but still like some of the shit that went on like in the seventies. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Like, it's no wonder that HIV would have taken hold in that kind of a, a situation. And so, you know, our generation was suddenly like, whoa, okay. And then, of course, we had Reagan telling us to just say no and, like, say no to drugs and all this other stuff. And so the 80s were a very straight-laced culture in yeah. comparison to the 60s and 70s. It's funny. Like, I, I made that connection about, about sexual mores. But it, just as we're talking, it occurs to me, like, that's, you know, there, I'm sure there's other causation, right? It's complex. It's, a, it's complex, not complicated. But there's a whole shift to the right in the culture in general in that period, yeah. right? There's the moral majority. There's, yep. you know, the new dawn of America. Um, yep. And well, I mean, that's, that's how Reagan won the election. And it ultimately, I, I've been making notes on a blog post on this for like two months now, and I just haven't had time to write it. But no, I mean, listen, my father's side of the family, part of it, part of it is from upstate New York, um, but his mother's side, so my grandmother on my father's side of the family, 
comes from Mississippi. And, you know, her father was the first board certified cardiologist in the state of Mississippi. He was the county doctor, blah, blah, blah. But they lived in the deep South for a long period of time. And they had, we had family members who were in the Mississippi legislature and blah, blah, blah. And if you had said to anybody in my Mississippi family in the 1960s, all of you are going to be voting Republican in a generation, oh, yeah. they would have fucking laughed you out of the room because mm -hmm. that was 99% Democrat. Because remember, the Republicans were the party of party Reagan. Of, yep. <laughs> And so, you know, th those are the yellow dog Democrats. But what shifted, you know, with the Vietnam era and with the baby boomers um, and the uncertainty that that introduced into American society in the same way that I think we're seeing that level of uncertainty now. A lot of people have drawn parallels with 1968. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. The, the, the Southern conservative religious groups, which historically have been Democratic, started to align with Nixon. And Nixon did not actively court this. He didn't need to. Nixon was mm -hmm. an old school, like Greenwich Republican. Mm -hmm. um, but Reagan and his advisors were smart enough to notice this. And so in order to clinch the 1980 election, which they won resoundingly, I mean, they got like 95% of the electoral college votes. Um, they cut a deal with the moral majority, as you said, yeah. And that's when everything shifted in the South and everybody went from being completely Democrat to being completely Republican. Yeah. And that is one of the most genius political moves of all time for Reagan. You know, well done for recognizing that him and his advisors. But unfortunately, it introduced a new dynamic into the Republican Party, which I think we have seen the apotheosis of in Trump. Um because it's basically anti-elitist, anti-education, very working class, um, very religious. And, you know, it's, it's led to, in my opinion, the ultimate downfall of the Republican Party. I mean, we're seeing the splintering of that party now. Um, well, I think with, that it's mirrored on the left, though, wouldn't you agree? It, it is. It, it's, of course it is. But, I mean, when you've got George W. Bush and Mitt mm -hmm. Romney and people like that coming out and saying they're not going to vote for a sitting Republican president. Like that's <laughs> pretty freaking serious. Thanks for listening to the Evolve Move Play podcast. If you really like the content we're putting out, make sure to leave us a five-star rating and a review. It helps tremendously in getting the word out about what we're doing. And of course, you really want to support us. You can support us on Patreon. This is a listener-funded podcast. And through your funding, it allows us to have the best equipment and to attract the best guests and build our audience. So we really appreciate it if you do those things. And we look forward to talking to you next time.